Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to today's program. My name is Mark Serianis. I'm your host. I'm the editor-in-chief of Taekwondo Life magazine, and I'm a third Don Black Belt. Today's program, we are going to be speaking about the life and legacy of a man and martial artist who not only had an impact on my life, but I dare say had a significant impact on the training and teaching of Taekwondo in the United States. That man is Dr. Robert Jenkins Clark. February marked the 11th anniversary of the passing of Dr. Clark, who died at the age of 95 in Southampton, New York. While it is my belief that Dr. Clark has had a significant impact on an influence on Taekwondo practitioners in the United States and that his place in modern Taekwondo history is extremely significant, I would venture to say that most people, even those that are erudite and educated in the area of Taekwondo history, probably know little or nothing about this giant of a man. So today we pay tribute to Robert Jenkins, R.J. Clark. I'm holding in my hand a hardcover first edition of a book that was published in the 1960s. It is a book that on anybody's list of important modern historic martial arts books that this book comes up again and again. And that book is called Korean Karate, The Art of Taekwondo by Duck Sung Sun and Robert J. Clark. As I said, this book was published in the 1960s, and inside is inscribed in a handwritten pen with best wishes to Mark Sirianis, who is pretty good at this, Robert J. Clark. 10 May 1989. This book is one of my treasures, and it is one of the treasures at the time that I studied under Dr. Clark and at the time that I had this book, I didn't fully understand the significance and importance of the book and of him and of his place in the United States and modern martial arts teaching. But that's what we're talking about today. We're paying tribute to Dr. Robert Jenkins Clark, who, among other things, happened to have been my first martial arts taekwondo instructor. Let's put things in perspective time-wise a little bit and then we'll we'll flip around. But this book was written in the 1960s. The book is written in English. It was not translated from a Korean uh, or Chinese or Japanese text. It was actually written for an American audience. We talk about Bruce Lee, who at the end of the 60s and the early 70s, when Bruce Lee died, in the early 70s, there was this notion that Bruce Lee was murdered. The myth is that he was murdered by the Chinese uh, tongues for teaching martial arts to Westerners. 
And while that makes an interesting story, and while the purpose of this show isn't to talk about whether that is or isn't true, it's interesting to understand that probably 10 years earlier than that, men like Duck Sung Sun, or Grandmaster Duck Sung Sun, of the Chungdaquan in Korea was in the United States teaching Taekwondo to men like Robert J. Clark. The book is called Korean Karate, and we've talked about that. That was covered a little bit by Chuck Norris in his book, The Secret of Inner Strength, but it was also covered in our episode talking to Grandmaster John Buren, who studied under S. Henry Cho, and at the time, there was this great, greater familiarity with people in the West with the term karate, so that many of the Taekwondo practitioners attempting to introduce their art to the West, instead of using Taekwondo, which was a little bit harder for Westerners to articulate, they simply referred to it as Korean karate, karate coming out of the West. So a little bit about my own journey. I've talked in the past about the fact that my childhood and I grew up in a time that martial arts practice for children in particular was not abundant in the West, that it was very difficult to find schools that would take young students, that my brother managed to qualify uh, in his teens in a school that only taught adults, but I was not able to, to make that cut. But yet my secret desire was to study the martial arts. So when I had the opportunity to become enrolled in a Taekwondo class, I was excited in the, in the 1980s. And I stood in front of a gymnasium with a wooden floor. The class was taught on the campus of Southampton College in New York, not in a dojang, but in a gymnasium as a sports class. And I stood out front on a sunny day waiting for the Taekwondo instructor to arrive. I saw her on the paperwork. It was R.J. Clark, or Master R.J. Clark. As I stood in front of the gym, a brand new bright yellow Ferrari Testarossa pulled up in front, catching the attention of everyone who was standing about. The doors flipped up, and slowly a stern-looking 80-year-old gentleman made his way out of the vehicle, which caught my attention and amusement simply because Seeing the car pull up with its dark windows, there was an expectation perhaps that some younger individual would pull up. This gentleman got out of the vehicle, shut the doors, and I noticed quickly that several students bowed as he bowed back. I would come to find out that this 80-year-old unique individual was Master Robert Jenkins Clark, our master, instructor, and a truly unique individual. That vehicle, that brand new Ferrari, bright yellow Testarossa, which had a female name, I don't remember. It might have been Nelly or something of that nature. That yellow Ferrari Testarossa was in many ways emblematic and emblematic of Dr. Clark and his life and personality. Uh, there would be little expectation on my part that uh, an 80-year-old 
gentleman would come climbing out of that Ferrari Testarossa. And I say climbing out because he had problems with his knees from the brutal training that he did earlier in his days, kicking trees and things of that nature. Um, so uh, it did take him a, a, a little while. But that was the type of contrast that Dr. Clark was, an American-born um, Caucasian male becoming a master of a Korean art, a man of tremendous strength, physical strength, probably among the strongest people I've ever known in my life, and yet a man whose intellectual capacity probably exceeded most individuals, a man who was challenged by a an aging body in his 80s, yet drove the fanciest, sexiest car that he could find. Um, all of these things were part of what made Robert Jenkins Clark such an unusual and interesting instructor and man. And while this program is not about Grandmaster Duck Sung San, I would be remiss without giving the background and the history of Grandmaster Sun and Chung Daquan a little bit to be able to give the background as to where Dr. Clark and his lineage emerged from. So we've talked in the past when we talked about our Kukiwan episode, and, and those that are listeners of this show are familiar with the fact that we talk about the original Kwans, the nine Kwans, or really at their core, the five Kwans. One of those original Kwans was Chung Daquan. Dr. Clark comes from the lineage of Chung Daquan from Korea. His teacher, his grandmaster, the famous Duck Sung Sun, Duck Sung Sun, is one of the original graduates of the modern Chung Daquan Kwan. He, born in Korea, close to the turn of the century, having lived through Japanese occupation, having lived through World War II Korean conflict, became a trained martial artist and leader of Chung Daquan style in Korea. Grandmaster Duk Sung San began training in the 1940s in Korea. In the 1950s, became one of the leaders of the Chung Daquan style. And by 1961 or 1962, had been part of the movement for unification of the Kwans and the globalization of the Korean martial art that was being referred to as several different things, but that we know as Taekwondo. So again, if we go back to that earlier premise that we talked about, about fear of teaching Westerners the Korean martial art or the any type of, of martial art, Duk Sung came to the United States in 1960, one, 10 to 12 years before the, really the height of Bruce Lee's Western popularity uh, and, his, and his death. So while it was not popular, while it was not well-known, this type of Western infiltration and influence had already begun. In and around 1963, Grandmaster Sun came to New York and did some traveling between New York City and the Hudson Valley. And in 1965, he 
was a featured demonstrator at the World's Fair in New York City. This was really significant. Uh, Again, at the time, not much was known about Asia and Asian martial arts. There was some exposure from folks who had served in World War II and Korean War, but it was still relatively unknown. And at that time, Master Grandmaster Sun was traveling around the Northeast doing several things. Some of them were going to colleges and universities. As I said, he demonstrated at the World's Fair. And very significantly for our story, he became the headmaster at the military academy at West Point, which is in all likelihood where he came in contact with a student, an intellectual, and somebody who would become a very, very important student of Dr. of Grandmaster Sun, which was Dr. Robert Jenkins Clark. Dr. Clark himself was a military student, and while the details of their meeting are somewhat spotty, when I say spotty, I just simply mean that we don't necessarily know too much about it. We know that there that the relationship formed and that Dr. Clark has the distinction of being one of the first 11 black belts promoted by Grandmaster Duck Sung Sun in North America. Now, if you think about that and you think about the genesis, we talk about Taekwondo going back in Korea for 2,000 years, but the United States at the practice of Taekwondo only goes back to the 1960s. We're only talking about 60 years, and of those first-generation people, of the first people in the entire United States that received their black belt from an Asian grandmaster was Dr. Robert J. Clark. Now, at the time that I studied under Robert Jenkins Clark, and I'll talk a little bit more about my experiences, I had no idea and no understanding and no perspective because I didn't fully understand I don't fully understand now Taekwondo history, but I had no knowledge of Taekwondo history, no knowledge of the players, and no real full understanding of how special and unique this individual was and how truly blessed I was to be able to be in his presence and studying under someone who really learned the art in its purest form from a Korean grandmaster who brought it from Korea. Together, and, and we'll talk a little bit about Dr. Clark's education and training and why he was so um, ripe for this type of a partnership and to be an, an emissary of Duxon in the United States. But as I indicated, in 1968, they published this beautiful hardcover book called Korean Karate, which was really among the first of its kind. If you go back and look at books that are that were published on martial arts, this is really one of very, very few handful of books from that time period. And it 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 really quite beautifully talks about the art. Korean karate began more than two thousand years ago when the warrior knights called the Harangdo developed a systemic and unmatchable fighting technique called Taekwondo, meaning the study of kicks and punches. Because of, its devastating, because of its devastating potency, this technique has been passed on from generation to generation of Korean fighting men and remains virtually unchanged to this day. 
Illustrated with 500 action photographs, Korean Karate is the most comprehensive book ever published in English on one of the fastest growing sports in America. So these guys were really ahead of themselves. Think about the fact that, you know, the the Taekwondo wouldn't debut in the Olympics until 1988. Um, it wouldn't be the World Taekwondo Championships wouldn't take place until 1963. I mean, excuse me, up until uh, would, the World Taekwondo Championships wouldn't be held in Madison Square Garden until 1993. And this book was written in 1968. It breaks down. It's got 11 chapters. What is Taekwondo? The fundamentals of Taekwondo. It's got warm-up exercises, basic uh, blows, kicks, and blocks, forms, three-step sparring, practical applications, freestyle spy- fighting, other exercises, and breaking objects and conclusion. It's quite a comprehensive textbook, and it was used, actually, when I took Taekwondo, it was used as our textbook. And it's quite a comprehensive textbook that breaks down uh, and is a great guide. But it, it certainly is not a, a pamphlet or a booklet. It's a several hundred page, it's a 300 page undertaking. And as I said, it's a beautiful hardcover book. It is currently out of print. And there's probably, when you, if you look for it and uh, if you try to find this book in book collections or on, on eBay, uh, probably going anywhere for 100, 100 and something dollars. Um, you know, my copy autographed by the author, probably worth more. To me, of course, it's priceless. The relationship between Dr. Clark and, and Duck Sung would eventually break down. By the time that I had met Dr. Clark, he had been somewhat embittered by his relationship and by the falling out that he had had with Grandmaster Sun, uh, although I don't ever know what the actual reason and basis for that is, and it not, isn't necessarily um significant to me. Dr. Sun died in 2011, actually. He lived quite a, a long and rich life. Um, interesting that these these Taekwondo men, uh, Dr. Clark died in his mid-90s. Um, Duck Sung died in his 90s. Um, these men live a, a life, not to say that they live a pure life, but I think that they, they have a good balance of um, mental and physical. Many of the Early Taekwondo masters from Korea are known to be extreme men that, that, that lived difficult lives, but yet many of these men lived long lives. Fifteen years later, Dr. Clark and, and Duk Sung wrote another classic book called Black Belt Korean Karate. This one was published in 1982. Certainly by that time, Taekwondo was far more prevalent in the United States the globalization of Taekwondo throughout the United States. The Kukiwan was established. The WT was established. Um, men like Grandmaster Hyun Hee, Hyun Wan Park, uh, Grandmaster Hua Chung had taken deep foothold in the United States in and under the newly cohesive Kukiwan direction. Remember when 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 Grandmaster Duk Sung came to the United States while there was an attempt, an attempt made to unify the Kwans, he was really representing Chung De Kwan. By 1982, when his book Black Belt Korean Karate came out, at that point, Taekwondo had become much more cohesive and was making that move towards the 1988 
Olympics, the 1993 World Taekwondo Championships in New York, and eventually the 2000 medal recognition first official entry of Taekwondo into the Sydney Olympics as a full medal sport. Dr. Robert Jenkins Clark was born in on May 19th, 1913 in the Midwest in Chicago, Illinois. As I said before, he was an extremely intelligent, erudite, and intellectual man, but he was as tough as nails. Particularly for the age in which he was born, his level of education is just really staggering. He had a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Stanford University. He had a Master of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Harvard University and later on would become a member of the Harvard Club of New York City. He had a Doctorate of Philosophy and Economics from New York University. I mean, we are talking about a highly educated man. He was listed as a noteworthy economist and educator by Marquis uh, Who's Who. He was a member of the National Association of Scholars, as I said, as well as a member of the Harvard Club of, of New York City. Dr. Clark was not all, as I said, cerebral. He was a great athlete. It was staggering to me that somebody of his age when I knew him could be as strong and with his physical disabilities of his legs being as damaged as they were. Many other people would have been in a wheelchair, but Dr. Clark made it a point to, to get around rather handily. And as I said, he drove a manual car. He was a qualifier in swimming for the 1932 U.S. Olympic team in Los Angeles, which is really quite amazing. Um, we talk about the fact that when I met Dr. Clark in the 80s, that Taekwondo had not even become a demonstration sport for the Olympics, but yet 50 years earlier, or more than 50 years earlier, he had been a qualifier for the U.S. Olympic team in Los Angeles. As I indicated, he went to, to West Point, which is where in all likelihood he and, and Grandmaster Duck Sung uh, formed their, their relationship. He graduated from there, and he had a military, civilian and military career working in Texaco Research Labs and Pan Am. He attributed his military training and his training at the West Point Academy and the U.S. Navy to providing him with the discipline and the structure that he needed. It is perhaps that structure and discipline that made him such an ideal candidate for the practice of Taekwondo, or perhaps it is Taekwondo that enhanced that. But he certainly was a structured and disciplined individual and a serious individual. He was a prolific writer. He wrote th literally thousands of articles over and above the books that he had written by the time that he had died. He was a teacher. He taught economics at a numbers of colleges from Dowling College, Suffolk Community College to West Point and Princeton. And he was a professor of or a teacher of Taekwondo at West Point where he had met Grandmaster Duck Sung and Princeton and Brown, Fordham University. He taught Taekwondo at Providence College at New York University at Long Island University. Those are significant. Again, when we look at, when we talked to Grandmaster John Buren about the life and influence of Grandmaster Hyun Hee Park, when I talked to Francis Pineda and Chun Ri about the life and legacy of Grandmaster Jun Ri, we talked about the fact that their legacy 
is not necessarily what they individually contributed, but that their legacy was in the number of people that they have taught in their lifetime and how that sphere of influence and that sphere of teaching continued. So think about Dr. Robert Jenkins Clark, who wrote two of the premier books that people have read in modern times on the art of Taekwondo, his Korean karate and black belt Korean karate. But the fact that people like myself and the people that he taught at West Point, Princeton, Brown, Fordham, New York University, Providence College, Dowling College, Suffolk Community College, Southampton College, Long Island University. Think about the cluster of those students and the impact that he had, as any teacher has, on the lives, the philosophies, and the practice of those. And what you come to understand is that Dr. Robert Jenkins Clark had a significant impact on the rise and practice of Taekwondo in the United States, particularly in the Northeast, if you look at the cluster of places in which he taught. But Dr. Clark was an international figure. He traveled uh, working as an economist economist and an economic advisor uh, in Thailand, in India, in Spain, in Portugal, and developed friendships in all those places. And when he traveled to those places, because as all of us today understand, when Taekwondo is a part of your life, it's very much a part of your life. And when you're a teacher and when you're a writer, it's very hard for you to make Taekwondo distinct from your other aspects of your life. So as Dr. Clark went to those places, he not only taught economics, he not only economically advised, but he brought the Korean art of Taekwondo with him, spreading his sphere of influence from Korea to the northeast part of the United States to Thailand, India, Spain, and Portugal. So again, when we look at the overall international impact of Robert Jenkins Clark, we discover that he really, really had a great opportunity to mold and shape the direction of Taekwondo in the world. In reading his obituary from February 4th, 2009, where he passed away at 95 years old. His family talked about him as daring, bold, and fearless. Among all the other things we talked about, he was into horse racing, where he would be on the horse. He liked race car driving. He had Daytona and Testarossa Ferraris. And I had mentioned before that uh, his Testarossa had a female name. I couldn't remember what it is, but looking at his obituary, I see it's Francesca. I did remember that he, he would refer to his He'd had this anthropomorphic relationship with his Ferrari, and he referred to it by a female name, but I see here that it's Francesca. Dr. Clark was a very rigid, difficult, stubborn type man, but he was a humorous man. He was a very kind man. He had a very high standard. I think it was hard for him because he was so intelligent to deal sometimes in the issues of the mundane. But again, in his contrast, he was sometimes very much about the, the mundane. He was ahead of his time on issues like environmentalism. He had a really strict rule of making sure that he gave back to the earth more than he was consuming, which even if you go back to the 1980s, 1990s, was way ahead of its time. But it was part of how he, he lived his life. And he 
took great pride in being a teacher, in being a professor. And I remember that when I had met him originally and was so found such a stark contrast of the fact that this 80-year-old guy was going to be my martial arts instructor, as some of the senior students like Vince McGann, who I tried to get in touch with for this um, email, who was really one of his top students, showed up, they all had great loyalty to him and great respect for him. And he showed them great respect in return. He was quite respectful and he was treated with respect and it was certainly deserved. During the time that I studied under Dr. Clark, which was about three years, I had gone into it with really very little practice in the martial arts, with not great athleticism, with not the greatest of of balance or skill. I wasn't the most agile. And he knew that. And he never... The one thing that I think for me that I had the benefit of for both of of my initial instructors, I, I consider myself one of the luckiest martial artists in the world because I went from Dr. Robert Jenkins Clark to Grandmaster Y.H. Park. And that both of those individuals were extremely strict, held students out to a high standard, never let you settle and never settled for anything less than your best effort, but yet were very understanding of physical limitations and of the fact that Taekwondo practitioners come in many forms, sizes, and shapes. Dr. Clark understood my limitations. He never let me, nor did he ever make excuses for them. And he pushed me and directed me to have the most growth that I could have. We studied the polygay forms in those days. I didn't get exposed to the beauty of the Taeguks till I studied with Grandmaster Y.H. Park. We sparred quite heavily with quite amount of, a decent amount of contact. In fact, I in my first class, we wore those uh, headgear and the red kind of styrofoam hand covers and foot covers, and I did not have a mouthpiece, took a shot to the face, and in my very first Taekwondo sparring session, broke a tooth. It was a great lesson. I did learn, one of the things that I really learned from training with Dr. Robert Jenkins Clark, if we want to look at the lessons, one of the most important lessons I think a person can take in life is that, and and Sylvester Stallone talks about this in Rocky Balboa, the, the movie, which I happen to love. I know it's got mixed reviews, but I love that movie. It's as important to learn in life how to take a hit as it is to give a hit. And Dr. Clark knew that. He He understood that while learning how to punch and learning how to kick is important, that there will always come a time if you if you were faced with confrontation where you needed to understand and bounce back from getting hit because you'll never always be, and perhaps because of his age and his slowing down, it was more real to him than, than others, you'll never always be the fastest, always be the strongest, always be the best. So if you couldn't take a hit, then you really hadn't gotten the most out of your training. And, you know, he was a funny guy, and he would never use a pad, even in his 80s. He would stand there when you were punching or when you were kicking, and he would use his hand as a Taekwondo kicking pad or shield. And he would say, quite jokingly, and we would laugh because we understood that in our 20s, uh, I'm a 225-pound 
you know, man in the best shape of my life. He's in his 80s, difficulty in walking, and would say to me, break my hand and I'll give you a black belt. And he meant it. I don't know that he really would have given me a black belt, but he was not afraid. He wanted you to hit his hand with full force and full power. He wanted you to use his hand as a target. And I think he wanted people to understand that all of the years of rigorous training, the training that really ultimately caused him to have difficulty walking from kicking trees and kicking hard objects, had really made him a tough guy. He was one of the true tough guys that I've ever met in my entire life. The training that we had there was not sport taekwondo. It was not designed for sport competition. It was very practical. Um, we learned a lot of street techniques. While we did learn form and we did, we did spar for point competition and we did enter some competitions, much of what we, what we did there was combative and it was designed to test your, your strength and your, and your technique. You know, and, and I didn't think about it at the time, but uh, Dr. Clark had truly one of the most humanistic and even-keeled personalities in the sense that during the early days of martial arts study in the United States, martial arts study was largely that of a male-dominated game. Uh, we had women in our class. There was a terrific higher belt when I came in, a purple belt when I had come in by the name of Kenya. Dr. Clark treated her as an equal. He was as hard yet respectful to her as he was to any of the males. He never allowed her, nor did he ever expect less from her because she was a woman. She was treated like any other student in his class. And for a guy who was born in 1913 in middle America, I think that that is a testament to his truly progressive nature. When I saw Dr. Clark's obituary in 2009, it was a great regret of mine that I had never reconnected with him at a later date, never gone back to visit him, never gone back to see him. It wasn't a product of any issues or problems. I just, geographically, I had moved. My life had gone on to a different journey. And because of the joy and enthusiasm that I had been seated with by Dr. Clark and by Vince McGann and by that Taekwondo class, I went on to join my brother at the YH Park Taekwondo Academy in Levittown. And as anyone who knows me knows, formed a familial relationship with the Park family and have gone on for the next 30 years on and off training in the beloved art of Taekwondo. But that journey began to some degree with Dr. Clark. And had that journey been started with someone who perhaps was less skilled, less qualified, less humorous, less dignified, it perhaps would have been a class that I had taken and talked about for years, but never led to my Taekwondo journey. When I was writing this uh, piece or when I was doing my research for this podcast on Dr. Clark, I put out some feelers to see if anyone remembered him, to see if anyone had taken his class, to see if anyone um, had any thoughts. And certainly uh, Glenn Dato, my lifelong friend, who is a black belt in the Kempo style, uh, we've spent many a time joking and laughing about our experiences in Dr. Clark's Taekwondo class. But I received a email response from a Scott Watson. 
CPP CFE, Field Security Officer for Wycliffe Bible Translators in Papua New Guinea, of all places. And he said, I, I saw your post about Dr. Clark, and I assume you were referring to the Dr. Clark who was an economics professor and taught Taekwondo in Suffolk County. When I first came to practice, he asked if I had any experience. I thought he meant specifically to Taekwondo, so I said no. And as we practiced, he said, are you sure you've never done this before? And when I hear him say that, I can hear it in Dr. Clark's sarcastic twang. I explained that I had a few years of experience in U.S. Goju. He said that he thought so and explained that I should keep whatever it is I learned from Goju-ru and incorporate whatever it is I learned from him into my bag of tricks. I liked the comment because so many people in the martial arts tend to denigrate styles that are not their own. Not Dr. Clark. He was exceptionally knowledgeable and yet humble enough to know that there were other good schools and instructors as well. And again, you know, I think part of the theme of this show has been the progressive nature of this, you know, 85-year-old guy in, in the 19, or 80-year-old guy in the 1980s. But it's truly remarkable. And we talk about the fact that, you know, Bruce Lee was the first and original mixed martial artist because Bruce Lee believed in the incorporation of what works for you, keep what works for you and throw away. Um, and while Dr. Clark was a serious and seasoned Taekwondo master and practitioner, and I would never venture to call him anything but that, it was clear that he had great respect for other martial arts and to some degree, a mixed martial artist's mentality. Um, this gentleman's talking about the 1980s and incorporating it into your bag of tricks. So while my knowledge of martial arts and other types of martial arts was so limited, I never would have thought of Dr. Clark in those days as a mixed martial artist. In retrospect, he far was far more progressive than I even understood at that time. Scott goes on to share another personal memory. One day we were practicing kicks and I lost my balance and fell down. Some of the other students laughed at me, and I was okay with that, but Dr. Clark was not. He chastised the group. He fell down because he is practicing hard, and all of you should be practicing just as hard. That is true to what I had indicated. Dr. Clark was not the type of guy to allow limitations in your ability and limitations in your skill to either turn him off to teaching you or to allow you to turn it off to yourself. With Dr. Clark, it was about your effort. So for Scott Watson in that case, and for myself, the one thing that has always been said about me, while my skill, I'll never kick the highest, I'll never kick the fastest, I'll never let anyone in the room outwork me. And while that does come from me, that was fueled and fostered in my relationship with Dr. Clark and with Grandmaster Hyanhee Park. Scott goes on to say very much like myself, that he, in leaving there, he continued to study various martial arts, practiced combatives that are he heavily influenced by the Korean art of Hapkido. And he says, while he's no expert, Dr. Clark is one of the people who set a great example for me in the martial arts and in my life. And I think that's something that I'm going to wind down with. The, the measure of the legacy of a man or woman, the legacy of a person, is the impact that they have on you and on others in your life. I haven't practiced martial arts under under Master Robert Jenkins Clark in over 30 years, 35 years now since I started. And yet his teachings, his influence, 
his impact and his demeanor have influenced me and have influenced Taekwondo practice around the world. So I ask you to take a moment, if you have the opportunity, to check out Dr. Clark's book, Antiquated as You May Find It, Korean Karate, The Art of Taekwondo, Black Belt Korean Karate, The Black Belt Art of Taekwondo, or any of the writings about Robert Jenkins Clark and any of the other great modern founders of this beloved art of Taekwondo. In memory of Dr. Clark and all the great masters who gave us this wonderful gift in the West, I say thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.